Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, on this, the 21st anniversary of the tragic 9-11 attacks. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street had its first winning week in a month as the pound dropped to a 40-year low against the dollar and the euro is now below the dollar. Ukraine is gaining back territory from Russia more quickly than expected as America donates another $2.8 billion in aid to Kiev as Moscow turns to North Korea for weapons and people uh, to help in its war efforts. Hopes are rising of a complete Russian military collapse, but the sentiment might also be overly optimistic as Moscow has shown a penchant for uh, creatively using its power to get out of the noose. Part of the USA package is to help nations on NATO's eastern flank buy Western or American equipment. Poland ordered 96 Apache attack helicopters from Boeing. The European Central Bank is looking for a common inflation fighting approach as it warns en- energy Uh, firms that it can't help them with liquidity. Russia's gas cutoff is driving major energy users in Europe to shutter facilities, including ArcelorMittal's plant in Bremen, uh, as well as Ferro Group's furnaces, uh, some of Ferro Group's furnaces in Spain. Europe's gas crisis, Rome's financial outlook in the wake of the end of Mario Draghi's premiership, and China's economically damaging COVID lockdowns are all fanning fears uh, that the economic downturn is going to get worse. Uh, constricting spending, uh, including for the very rich, uh, in turn impacting all manner of luxury goods, including business jets, travel, and the like. And just two days after asking Liz Truss to form a government as prime minister, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth passed away at age 96 after more than seven decades of exemplary service to her nation as King Charles ascends uh, the throne uh, as the longest serving heir apparent. Uh, And deliveries of Lockheed Martin's F-35 Lightning II fighter were suspended uh, after the Defense Contract Management Agency discovered a banned Chinese alloy uh, that was included in a magnet made by Hun- a Honeywell subcontractor that was included uh, in more than 800 of the jets already delivered. Uh, all this as America reflects again on the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, here in sunny Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Wouldn't be Sunday unless you were joining us. Yeah, Vago, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Vago. Always a fun time. Thank you, Vago, for having us on. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security, sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications, sponsors our command and control coverage. And we're a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by... Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS, and check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much again for joining us, Ron, as you always do. Uh, Market, uh, start us off. Markets uh, were up. Uh, Talk to us about the drivers and how the group uh, performed and what the street sentiment is. And, and sort of more broadly want to get everybody's take 
uh, on whether we're looking at a deeper economic downturn than I think people are expecting, in part because of global dynamics, even though things are looking much more positive for the United States, inflation going down, uh, the uh, price of gas uh, declining, uh, the general sentiment being overall somewhat more positive that we might have a much milder uh, recession coming up, that there are these global dynamics that we're facing with. And, and when you have this kind of contagion across so many different fronts, that it has, uh, that it, it washes up on America's shores. Take it away, uh, Ron. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think this week will be the first kind of real week back, um, if you will, from uh, uh, post-Labor Day. Uh, last week was a shortened week. Uh, and this week also sort of kicks off what um, Wall Street is known as sort of conference season. Uh, where, you, know, you start to hear uh, a lot of uh, news, uh, potential headlines coming out of uh, investor conferences across different sectors, right? And that'll have a you know an impact on, on, on markets. Uh, if you look at uh, last week, specifically, uh, the, uh, the S&P uh, on the week, uh, on the shortened week, was up uh, a little over 3.5%. Uh, Boeing, as Bellwether, was in line with that. So was uh, Northrop Grumman. Um, some of the other defense names were a little bit behind that. Uh, the, the champ for the week was Bombardier. It was up uh, about 10.5%. Uh, but broadly, most of the group was, was up in the week, and, and we saw uh, some recovery from the, uh, the recent downtrend that we've been seeing. Uh, interest rates uh, were also uh, up on the week. You know, we're getting back to a level that we hadn't seen in a little bit. Uh, the 10 years at 3.3%. I think the consensus view now is that the, the Fed's next move will be another 75 uh, basis point move. And, and I think the debate is, you know, where does the Fed actually uh, stop? Is it 4%, uh, 4.25%, 4.5%? Um, we'll we'll see, but there's there's still a bit of a way to go. Uh, I don't think um, there's been uh, a, a, a ton of debate just yet about uh, you know the the, you know, the broader global economic condition, uh, but I'm certain that'll come I mean, as management teams talk and so on and so forth. So so we'll see, but I think this week and next week will be important uh, weeks to kind of gauge uh, the market barometer as we go into. Uh, you know, the, the, the latter part of the year. And I uh, don't want to be certainly somebody who's trying to talk down markets, right? But I mean, this is a concern that some have uh, expressed, uh, not just to me, but uh, friends uh, over the past week uh, in terms of what these, um, you know, longer term, deeper trends might be, uh, particularly for the, for the, you know, luxury and higher end sector. And normally when folks that are tend to be insulated from these uh, kinds of shocks or the ones who are sort of talking a little bit about them. Uh, you can't help but notice whether or not there might be somewhat more of a needle mover further down in the economy for people where uh, there are shocks and impacts. Uh, uh, Sash, uh, you're in a country where energy prices have literally soared something like 2000% or, or will. Uh, obviously, uh, there's a new prime minister uh, in the United Kingdom and our deepest sympathies uh, on the passing of uh, Her Majesty, uh, which was truly the end of a, a generation and inflection point. And we'll discuss that in a little bit. A um, lot of challenges building up, right? Uh, Christine Lagarde is as, uh, as prepared a person who sat in the role uh, of the chair of the, of the uh, European Central Bank. Uh, and yet we find some of these tectonic uh, issues. Mario Draghi's retirement, again, complementing sentiment, uh, sentiments, right? Italy was an important uh, country in the last economic downturn and drove uh, significant concerns uh, for when its financial meltdown happened, thanks to, you know, intemperate comments by Silvio, Silvio Berlusconi, repeated intemperate comments by Silvio Berlusconi. Um, walk us through the dynamic from a European perspective 
uh, and, and how shares traded and how the group performed. But more broadly, what do you see when you put your longer-term crystal ball, look into your longer-term crystal ball? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, look, please forgive me because the last uh, two days of last week, I wasn't terribly focused on um, share prices, and I don't think many people in the UK were uh, either. Um, we had rather more, well, may not necessarily be important, but things that were more important to, to us to consider. But, you know, I mean, Ron's absolutely right. The, 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 the sector overall in Europe ended the week uh, ended the week pretty good. Um, but, you know, small up rather than large up. So that's hardly enough to, uh, to get things going. Just to put that in perspective, Airbus, um, which is, you know, it should be the bellwether stock in um, the sector because it's the largest European aerospace and defence stock by our country mile. Um, having traded up at 111 euros back in August is down at about 96 at the moment. So um, uh, there's, there's not a huge amount of exuberance um, going on at the moment. Um, interest rates are going up, but they're going up in a slightly haphazard fashion. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of the uh, peculiarities of the, um, uh, the British uh, succession of the monarchy and so forth that the Bank of England has put off its decision on interest rates when it should have announced this week that it was putting interest rates up by at least half a percent and probably three quarters of a percent and maybe even a whole percent, and it's put that off for two weeks. Um, and I've seen some commentators saying, it doesn't matter how much you are trying to, um, you know, honour the memory of Queen Elizabeth, honouring that by persisting with a the wrong monetary policy and the wrong interest rate policy actually doesn't do that. Um, and I have some sympathy with that comment, but the Bank of England has decided not to. So the UK is going to be behind the interest rate cycle. Effectively, it's outside the OODA loop at the moment, um, probably now for a, uh, for a couple of months. And the European Union has shown how incredibly hard it is to get 27 nations to agree on a single energy policy. Um, it's probably unrealistic. Italy is a really interesting example. Uh, Mario Draghi was one of, probably he was the adult in the room in Italy, and he was one of the serious adults in the room uh, at um, European levels. Uh, he had the great advantage, as, or has the great advantages as a, and I'm using this in quotes here, politician, that he didn't need to be a politician. He didn't need to be there. He was a, a tech, the technocrat's technocrat. He'd been a banker for most of his career. He'd been a central banker. He had been a pan-central banker. And so making him prime minister was, it was a job he could do incredibly easily. But he also didn't care for the politics, and he made that abundantly clear. It is a concern that almost whatever the next Italian government is going to be is going to have parties in it uh, that are at the very least vociferous and possibly worse and you know, may not be uh, wholly um, palatable for other European nations. That's the nation, but that's the nature of European politics. You know, we've got a fairly similar situation in Sweden with the coalitions that may or may not form as a consequence of that, of that country's general election. Um, you know, these are the wonders of, of democracy, but it's a, it's a very difficult time. And the fact that the EU was not able to come to an energy policy is, it's disappointing, but actually the way that markets reacted to it, it wasn't a surprise. I think assuming that just because it's called the European Union, it is united, has almost always been a mistake, and it certainly was over energy policy, applying from the English Channel to certainly the, the Polish border. 
and obviously, right, I mean, Draghi did make that clear. He's made that clear repeatedly. He tried to resign. He stayed on long enough to try to allow parties uh, to have a little bit more of a centrist outcome. And alas, we can we can continue uh, waiting. Um, but there is also a lot more trouble uh, to come. Liz Truss, one of the first things she did was try to control energy prices, which weighs heavily, not just on every Britain, but every British business. We're seeing major facilities uh, shutting down for want of energy. Um, there are plans to stretch energy out, reduce thermostats and do a whole bunch of uh, other uh, moves. We talked about those a little bit last week. Uh, but is there a sense that we're actually heading into far tougher economic waters uh, than not, or are folks doing enough to try to mitigate it, right? I mean, we're in the United States, it, is seem, it appears we are ahead of the power curve when we are getting our arms wrapped around it. Um, there's a sense, you know, and, and the Russians have many more weapons uh, that they can still use, no pun intended, uh, in order to try to make, every, you know, and people are still doing quite a lot of trade with Russia, even if they've stopped energy trade, um, you know, it, it's still is valuable for food, uh, for for example. It can still do things to damage Ukraine's uh, green supplies. Um, it's not abundantly clear they're going to extend that the deal that's allowed a couple of ships with tens of thousands or perhaps a few hundred thousands of tons of uh, grain uh, to leave Ukrainian ports. Ultimately, we're talking about tens of millions of tons uh, of Ukrainian grain not getting to the markets. Um, sort of walk us through the dynamic and, and what the sense is uh, going forward, understanding obviously formally the formal mourning period extends through Her Majesty's funeral on uh, September the 19th. Okay, yeah, so from a, um, uh, from a parochial standpoint, uh, Liz Truss's government announced a, um, a, a, a package to try to resolve the impact of the energy crisis on uh, the UK consumer and UK in, uh, industries. That was Tuesday, and to, I have to be honest, I've already forgotten the details, and I suspect everybody else in the country has as well, because we've had more important things on our hands, genuinely. Um, so we'll probably come back to that in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, and uh, from memory, it was incredibly expensive, somewhere between five and 7% of GDP each year to subsidize fuel bills. And most countries in Europe have got a similar sort of bill if they are going to keep fuel bills down this winter to that level. It's regrettable that there is very little work being done on mitigation, you know, telling people to use less power. The problem with that is, of course, is that telling people to do less of what they currently do tends to be unpopular politically compared to just paying them some money to, so that the impact isn't as bad. Um, it's one of the least attractive outcomes of, or the least attractive products of the political situation. Um, but most, you know, the UK has a fuel package of some sort. We'll, you know, we'll come back to it again after the, much of the Queen's funeral sometime. Um, uh, it, will it or will it not be enough? Actually, as much as anything else, one of the key issues there is going to be what happens in Ukraine. We will come back to that uh, on this podcast uh, later on. But I think that um, the single biggest card that Vladimir Putin could play in this whole thing was cutting off Nord Stream 1. Yes, there are the issues of food, there are the issues of grain. It's not, though, beyond the, the, uh, the po uh, you know, possibility that Ukraine and its allies could force grain through the Black Sea uh, and out into the Mediterranean. In fact, it feels more likely to me as more and more of uh, the Black Sea uh, coast is either uh, liberated or certainly put under great pressure by 
uh, Ukraine in an indirect fire, that the Russians again have other things to worry about rather than blockading the, uh, the Black Sea. So I would say that oil is uh, Vladimir Putin's biggest uh, card. He's played that. He's shut Nord Stream 1 off. That causes huge alarm in European capitals and progressively and probably badly and certainly messily, we'll all do something about it. It almost certainly won't be enough, in which case budget deficits will go up. Uh, but it didn't feel as alarming, I think, as people expected to, even in Germany. That's the really interesting thing about it. We've had a long time to at least steal ourselves for it, even if we haven't prepared for it. Um, uh, the, but, you, you know, you're absolutely right. Is this what creates recessions? Absolutely. It's going to be a very, very difficult winter. But Europe is in a much better position relative to the dreadful position it was in six months ago uh, in terms of working out how to how to compensate for a lack of Russian gas. I would uh, like to believe that it was just people who were uh, a little bit worried about uh, what was going on as opposed to something more tectonic. Richard, you've been very patient. Sort of give us your sense, uh, travel-wise, trend-wise, economic-wise, and, and what you're seeing and what do you think uh, it's all uh, going to mean as we look uh, further down the path now that we're going into the fall, right? I mean, it's after Labor Day, so everybody's got to retire their whites and linens in Washington, uh, even though we get a little bit more margin, right? We're a little further south and a little bit warmer, but you get you get the meaning. Yes, yes. Whether or not global warming will force us to abandon sartorial norms uh, relative to Labor Day and White, that's a big question. But, you know, it's an interesting issue. The whole, what happens this time? Uh, are we delinked? Uh, because, you know, of course, historically, uh, air transport demand has been very closely linked with economics. But this time, we've completely become uncoupled. You know, obviously, the economy recovered for pandemic reasons way before air travel demand uh, uh, recovered. Um, so the big question, if the economy takes a hit, uh, if there is a recession, whatever else, does the recovery in air travel demand just keep going? And in a decoupled ways, people make up for lost time, revenge travel, seeing old friends and family, and of course, business associates and whatever else. Um, good question. Uh, we don't know the answer to that, but that thesis is basically being tested. Are we decoupling uh, or are we staying decoupled? I suspect we might. I mean, the strength of the very strong. If anything, the system kind of needs a breather in terms of everything from aircraft availability to crew availability. You know, if we have a, a softer fall, that is to say autumn uh, relative to summer in terms of demand, that might be a good time to you know recover our bearings in the industry. Um, but I, I tend to think that given the you know tailwinds uh, associated with the air travel demand recovery, we're going to be fine even in a recession unless it lasts longer than the usual couple quarters. Um, the big complication here in terms of macro recovery back to 2019 growth continues to be China. And that's not a recession. That's a, oh dear, we, we've talked about this ad nauseum and we, I suspect we still must and will continue to do. Um, you know, that appears to be a, a colossal change in a society. Um, that would strongly argue for maybe a continued recovery and, and, and a hopeful level of delinkage between macroeconomics in North America, Europe, and most other markets, but the impact of China and it not recovering uh, for some time, that could, you know, basically put off the day of recovery to the 2019 top line number until say 2025 conceivably. Um, the other area 
follow, of course, is business jets. And that's another white hot market rather delinked because, of course, you know, that was recovering before the broader economy. That was just people, you know, fight to safety and whatever else. That continues to be pretty strong, maybe not quite as strong. The end of the Russian maybe three or four percent of cabin of uh, or of all cabin demand um, that didn't put any kind of dent in things. You still got aircraft availability in record territory. That is to say, a record low level of jets and pricing is firming up. People are holding the line at production rates because they're enjoying the profits associated with pricing firming up. Will uh, a recession change any of this? I don't know. I, I doubt it. Um, you know, historically, it's it's not that sensitive, especially at the this, the needle moving large cabin segment. You know, your Gulfstreams, Dassos, and Bombardiers. So I tend to think of anything. You know, you could have a little bit of availability come back, but pricing stay fundamentally good, and uh, production rate goals staying also pretty much intact. So I'm not overly worried about a recession for either of the commercial segments we cover. I guess that's the bottom line. Ron, do you want to add anything to any of these sort of broader dynamics? I mean, understanding that you're not the bank's, uh, you know, broader markets guy, you're the defense and aerospace guy. But, you know, are you, you know, anything you want to add to that before I take you to the next question about, um, you know, economic impact of the enormous amount of U.S., you know, spending that's going to try to help Ukraine and America's allies? But first, do you want, do you want to weigh in on the broader markets question? Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with Richard um, completely. I mean, I guess the one thing I would add um, when you look at uh, large civil aviation and uh, also business aviation, is everything's just constrained constrained by supply chains, right? Um, you know, it's sort of the markets oddly upside down, being that uh, the production rates at uh, all the OEMs across commercial markets isn't being driven by demand, but really is uh, driven by what they can get out of their supply chain. Uh, and for the business jet manufacturers, I would argue that's probably oddly a good thing because it's forcing all players to be um, consistent with a, with a pricing strategy where uh, when supply chains loosen up and maybe demand uh, uh, gets a little more slack, we might not see uh, as much discipline in pricing. But right now the supply chain is forcing discipline in pricing across the sector because nobody can build jets as quickly as demand would want. Um, and sadly, that's not exactly the case in commercial I and mean, the, the pricing is a whole different dynamic. But again, as, as we all know, I mean, both Boeing and Airbus are constrained right now by, by supply chains. Folks just simply can't make stuff uh, fast enough. And we're going to talk about supply chain problems in just a moment vis-a-vis -vis the F-35. Ron, start us off. I mean, the United States is making a lot of aid available to its allies and partners, been giving a lot of equipment. There are contracts that are moving on the U.S. side to replenish U.S. stocks and a lot of discussion on that. Um, you know, we had Poland uh, ordering 96 uh, H-64E uh, aircraft, which are going to improve the Polish Air Force and then free up resources, for example, that the Poles can donate, as we've seen in other uh, NATO countries uh, to Ukraine, um, you know, making it much easier for the Ukrainians to absorb this. Talk to us about how this is all being reflected on the company's bottom lines, right? Because there are some in industry who are saying those contracts, the replacement contracts are not moving as quickly. Defense spending is going up, but now we have inflation pressures on it and companies are seeking redress, right? So give us kind of a sense on a little bit of a, a snapshot on where the group is now uh, and whether or not any of this is being reflected in the bottom line, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, we haven't we haven't seen it yet. Um, you know, there was an interesting report that came out on Friday that kind of broke down 
um, you know, various uh, spending on you know, uh, resupplying uh, U.S. inventories, kind of what was sort of, you know, kind of directly being supplied. My, my expectation is we'll start to see more of that uh, with the, you know, the relevant contractors in the, in the second half of the year. I mean, yeah, there's some big numbers in there, right? The U.S. has spent close to, you know, uh, uh, it was $400 million on just 155 million, 155 millimeter uh, uh, ammunition. And, you know, there's, the contractors get that and all the missile programs and so on and so forth. I would imagine we'll see that in the second half of the year. Defense, interestingly, however, is in a similar situation as commercial, meaning you know the demand signals there, but they're as, as supply you know, they're as supply chain constrained as uh, many of the commercial guys. Uh, and and it, maybe the difference with the defense industry is it was a bit of a more of a surprise uh, in the beginning of this year in 2022. We were all expecting that in commercial, and you know that that's kind of how it's played out. I don't think we were all expecting it in defense, and it seems like many of the large primes weren't expecting it to the degree that it's hitting them, and it, it, they're in a similar situation. You know, there's the demand for uh, for uh, the product, but they are supply chain constrained, and um, hopefully, as that begins to sort itself out in the second half of this year into next year, you'll start to see that follow through as well. Sash. You have been our uh, resident sort of, um, you know, war progress um, analyst. Um, one of the things that everybody last week was saying, look, this is going to be slow. It's going to be grinding. Uh, expect not much change. Use of the word stalemate. Um, and then the Ukrainians mount this offensive. And now, lo and behold, they are making enormous progress, something like 3,000 square kilometers taken back. Um you know, Ukrainians warning, look, the Russians are going to counterattack, right? And so far we've had, you know, and it's one thing to take ground. It's another thing to hold that ground, um, you know, and, and obviously all the aid and training uh, that our allies and partners have been giving the United Kingdom deserves um, incredible thanks for preparing uh, a new generation of soldiers, uh, Ukrainian soldiers to go to the front and fight with the very best that, that the British Army and British forces can bring uh, to tactical and strategic acumen. Walk us through where we are, what this collapse means, because Richard's sense is this could have some very, very significant um, spending implications. And I'm going to let Richard take that uh, issue on in a second, but sort of give us your sense on your battlefield assessment, um, what what this means, how easily reversible it is, because the Russians are not only getting um, uh, North Korean uh, weapons, uh, right, which are of a Soviet caliber and Russian, you know, there is an interoperability quotient there that's uh, familiar. Uh, but uh, Patrick Cronin, who's our, uh, the uh, Dr. Cronin, who's at the, who's the Asia Security, uh, Asia Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute think tank, has said that the, the North Koreans are likely to provide manpower as well, right, which could provide um, more cannon father, whether or not they have a esprit de corps or well fed or not, there are going to be people who are going to be able to fight. Walk, walk us through where we are and what's next and what you think is fascinating because this development over the last week or so has been fascinating. Okay, yeah, I, it's been an incredible week. Um, it, uh, it, you know, military, first of all, and I, I suppose there are sort of four points I'd make. One, um, deception is incredibly important in warfare and the Ukrainians have played this brilliantly. They have spent six weeks saying, we are going to attack Kherson. We're going to attack Kherson. Did we tell you we're going to attack Kherson? And then they attack Kherson and they keep on attacking Kherson. Everybody focuses on Kherson. And then what do they do? They attack Kharkiv. Brilliant, brilliant deception because it's 
increasingly apparent that the Russians listened to what the Ukrainians said they were going to do, thinned out their lines, which were probably overextended anyway, uh, up in the north, um, and made the Ukrainian counterattack in the Kharkiv area um, much less difficult. So fantastic uh, use of deception. Secondly, what have the Ukrainians used for this? Ultimately, having done the softening up over a period of over three months now, with indirect fire, artillery, rockets, in particular, MLRS, HIMARS, um, it's been a very old fashioned assault, combined arms, artillery, tanks, wheeled armored fighting vehicles. There's a lesson there for NATO, uh, if anybody's prepared to take it. Third point, where is Russian air? The Russians have basically lost air superiority, despite the fact that the Ukrainians don't have very many aircraft. That's actually a very worrying conclusion for, you know, for air forces everywhere, um, that it is possible to negate air superiority with a sufficiently dense um, air defense environment, which is what the Ukrainians currently have. But you know, Russian air, which should be incredibly strong, has been hopeless. Um, you're absolutely right. There, will, there should be Russian counterattacks. But um, I'm very struck at the moment, I mean, as a, you know, some, you know, a historian, certainly by training, that what we're seeing in Ukraine is something that approximates to what we saw in 1918 with what was referred to as the 100 Days Offensive. This was the Franco-British-American uh, offen series of offensives after the uh, failure of the great German Spring Ludendorff Offensive where the, the French, the British, the Americans launched a series of attacks, an attack in the north of the Western Front, then an attack in the south, then an attack in the center, then an attack in the north. And at every single stage, they, we took the Germans off balance and the Germans could not reinforce from one end of their lines to another. And it'll be very difficult for the Germans to, rein, oh, sorry, for the Russians to reinforce to the north up to Kharkiv again, if they do, they may well weaken their lines at Kherson or somewhere else. And so I think the, you know, to, to, to make this more, more modern, the Ukrainians certainly this week have got massively inside the Russian OODA loop, um, observe, orientate, decide, act. They are, you know, it's very apparent that they're well inside the, the Russian uh, OODA loop at the moment. And that is, all other things being equal, the, 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 the key to military success. They're doing this with forces that have been much better trained, but you know, are uh, still deficient in some of what in the West we would, we would regard as being um, the sort of the, the, the assets and the, the skills that you require for combined arms, arms operation. They're doing a fantastic job. And I suspect that having taken ground, given that Ukrainian forces are still infantry heavy, they have a slightly better chance of holding it since the Russians will find it very difficult to bring the artillery they require back up to strength to uh, counterattack again. As for the Koreans, we'll wait and see. That will quite clearly open a different geopolitical front. Um, and I suspect the Koreans, North Koreans need to be pretty careful about that one. Um, you know, North Korean arms and ammunition, that's, you know, that, that's understandable. But no, it's been, a, it's been an astonishing week and the Ukrainians have shown how, what a great job they've done of all the arms, ammunition and training that we've given them in the last six months and, you know, Godspeed them. Um, Richard, your sense, and does Russia just collapse? 
I mean, aren't there many more cards that the Russians are going to play? I mean, I think they pulled the nuclear level lever too soon. Uh, that got everybody, you know, slowed everybody down a little bit. But now, you know, everybody's been pretty much emboldened and sending whatever they're going to send there. I don't suspect Russia can afford starting a full-up war with the rest of NATO. I don't know if that's going to work. It's interesting that I think the Moscow City Council demanded Vladimir Putin's resignation, which I thought was kind of interesting, um, if, if a, a tweet uh, that I saw this morning is, is any indication. I mean, how do you, you know, as a, as a King's College graduate uh, in military studies, I mean, how do, you, how do you see this? My old professor, Lawrence Friedman, would immediately say, war studies. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for asking. It's a huge issue, in my view, because about 10 days ago, I read this fascinating essay by Francis Fukuyama. If you remember, the, of course, the great end of Cold War triumphalist who said, you know, well, it's the end of history and the last man. Liberal democracy and market economy wins. And, uh, you know, anyone who tries something different is just screwing around and doomed to failure. And he wrote an essay saying, Still sticking with it. It might have taken longer than I thought, but this looks like a somebody totally taking a different approach, i.e. a dictatorship, a controlled economy, economy with lots of corruption. And um, man, they're failing and they're going to collapse. And I didn't really think much of it at the time. It was written in late August. But now looking at what's going on, uh, there's a scenario here. Is it the baseline scenario? Maybe not yet. Is it a po very possible scenario? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, so I agree completely with um, Sash's fascinating 1918 uh, tactical analogy, but it's possible that the strategic analogy is 1989. And uh, those of us who don't remember, um, I expect all of us uh, of a certain age do, uh, boy, that was devastating for defense spending. So <laughs> not, to, not, to sit, not to look a gift horse in the mouth, but if we really are watching the bonfire of stupid, corrupt, inefficient, state-owned, you know, dictatorial, abusive societies, and of course, this axis of ridiculousness between Russia, Iran, and uh, North Korea is, is any indication of that, then, boy, you could be looking at something that actually rejuvenates uh, the, the ideals that Francis Fukuyama advanced. And again, that would be wonderful for the human race and really bad for defense spending. <laughs> I think it's a macro picture. You know, Kath Hicks over at the Pentagon refers to Russia, of course, as the uh, the acute threat, but China is the pacing threat. That becomes the big question. If you are looking at a Russia collapse where, you know, either there's regime change or just they, they just get completely marginalized and drag those other marginal guys down with them, what conclusions does China draw? Do they simply say, oh, yeah, well, we're going to be the new bad, bad guy on the block? Or do they say, time to rethink this decoupling thing and maybe a little less of a confrontational wolf warrior style because, gee, this way lies madness. That's, of course, going to be the big question that determines defense spending moving forward. Again, though, you're bringing a rationalist approach to us, right? Authoritarians tend to be somewhat less rational. Indeed, that's where we are uh, now. And when Vladimir Putin goes, right, they could get rid of Putin, double down, you know, force the draft through, right? I mean, every, you know, many uh, observers' expectation is that if Vladimir Putin goes, there will be an equally unsavory figure who's going to take over. And China has invested quite a lot in control of its population, right? So, I mean, it's not that abundantly clear. So Russia may go away as, as, you know, I, I think Russia remains dangerous for a while. Um, you know, even if Putin 
goes, uh, you know, feet first, or, you know, as, as we discussed in quiet exile, uh, a la Nikita Khrushchev, you know, on his tractor somewhere, um, you know, in a St. Petersburg suburb. Um, I don't know if there are any tractors in a St. Petersburg suburb, but, just, but I just um, remember seeing the picture of Khrushchev on a tractor <laughs> towards the end of his life. Um, you know what I mean? So it, it might not, it, it, it would be great that it works out that way, but it's not abundantly clear. And again, I mean, you know, many would argue that we're fighting for democracy in the core democracies uh, of the world, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in the United Kingdom, whether it's in France, um, uh, at a time when when these authoritarians are riding roughshod. But I but I take I take your I take your point, uh, Ron. Uh, I, we're unfortunately very short on time, and everybody is also short on time, literally, because they've all got things to do uh, the minute that we stop this taping. Um, do, do you want to weigh in on this uh, at all and what you think your sentiment is, or uh, do we just uh, move uh, on uh, to the F-35 impact issue? Uh, because it's 800 airplanes, their materials, but you know, anything you want to add to the broader Russia, uh, China strategic spending trend? I mean, do you see this wrapping up quickly and us beating our swords into plowshares, or is your expectation that we're going to continue to spend robustly on defense? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess wishful thinking that you get the, the plowshares, but um, that that would not be my expectation. And like Richard said, I mean, really, the the, the bigger threat is is China. Um, you know, ultimately, uh, and again, just kind of back to the point. Uh, you, you look at Russia. Uh, what we spend one year in defense is half their economy. Um, what we spend in one year in defense is maybe five percent of China's economy. So. It's a total different ballgame. Um, so, I mean, you know, what I mean, it's you know, sadly, I guess uh, we, you know, we, we just won't get there until we understand what's going on uh, right. in the Pacific. Um, I, I would add one other thing: the United States uh, and its allies are helping Ukraine in a way that probably no nation, no modern nation, has been helped in their war. So, not only are we providing equipment, we're providing intelligence, we're providing training. Um, and that can negate a lot of Russian advantages I, when it does not have. Um, I, I guess, Vago, the one thing that does advantages that does worry me, um, and this is just speaking as me and not for the bank or anything, is Russia knows that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, what do right. they do? I mean, it, it's hard to believe that they're just going to sit there and get beaten up. I mean, you just have to wonder how what buttons in the in the escalation equation get hit now because of this. Um, I, I agree with you, right? I mean, the Russian use is existential. They can define existential any way they want to, whether it's a special uh, military operation or not. Richard, uh, kudos to you for sending out that meme of uh, special military operation or peace uh, by uh, Tolstoy. It was, it, was, it was a different book than War and Peace, um, but still uh, moving uh, nonetheless. Um, we have a lot of ground to cover, very short amount of time to cover it in. Uh, Ron, uh, quickly walk us through this F-35 issue. I mean, it seems somewhat of a mountain on a, uh, a it sounds more like a molehill than a mountain. But let's just discuss it. What does this really mean ultimately and how does it get resolved, right? Um, okay, you make sure you don't do it again. Um, I mean, how does this resolve itself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess my read on it is I mean, ultimately it gets resolved probably pretty quickly, right? Because it's not some sort With of waiver, electronic, right? Yeah. For existing jets. Yeah. That's I imagine how it would play out. But I mean, ultimately this is not some sort of electronic system that could be, 
have a back door on it or is doing something um, you know more nefarious. Um, but but that being said, you always worry about kind of where you see one roach. Are there more? Um, and you know, and how did this happen in the first place? And how did he get through all the gates and checks? Um, so, so I think that's probably the bigger question that, right. you know, does there need to be a bigger scrub on the program? Because uh, if this got through, what else did too? Uh, and uh, I think that's probably where, where we are. Uh, uh, so ultimately, this in and of itself isn't a big deal. And hopefully there's nothing else. But I would imagine that's, that's really the, the point of all this. Um, Richard, uh, let me just uh, take you uh, and ask whether or not you want to, you have anything that you want to add to this, uh, and, and Sash, we're going to go to you on Liz Trust and Her Majesty, uh, in, uh, a moment, uh, but Richard, anything you want to add to this and, and also talk to us a little bit about what, uh, the, um, the Polish, uh, Apache order, uh, ultimately means. Go ahead. You know, I think it's interesting. Yeah, as Ron says, you know, these are not exactly transmit and receive allies. <laughs> molehill, you know, definitely molehill. In terms of the Apache, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested because there's such a narrative that emerges that has emerged in many different ways as a result of the, the war on Ukraine. You know, oh, this changes everything. You know, attack helicopter is no longer relevant. Well, the poles are at the front line. They seem to have reached the wrong conclusion. You were talking before about maybe Russian air power being, uh, you know, evidence of, you know, maybe air power is not relevant anymore. I think Sash said that actually. Yeah, maybe, but uh, could easily be that we shouldn't draw any conclusions here. The Russian military is the victim of an unbelievably corrupt system, completely demotivated soldiers, poor training, poor doctrine. It's quite possible that the frontline folks are just learning completely different conclusions. And buying one of the largest attack helicopter forces in Europe, no, the largest attack helicopter force in Europe, clearly shows that the people right there watching things up close and personal see irrelevance for these systems. The market decides uh, ultimately. Um, Sash, uh, really quick, and you can add anything uh, you want to that discussion. But as time, as we're winding down to the last four minutes or so of the program, uh, quickly, uh, Liz Truss and her cabinet, Ben Wallace, remains uh, defense secretary, which uh, comes as a relief to uh, many. Um, and uh, a number of folks saying that, look, her comments, whether they were aimed at Brussels or questioning the special relationship, should have been just seen as, as that campaign uh, statements that she remains committed to the special relationship and indeed is going to work, want to work uh, with uh, Britain's uh, traditional allies uh, and partners. A very warm message, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the first foreign leader to comment uh, on Her Majesty's uh, passing. Give us uh, your sense on uh, the path that Liz Truss is on and what her first couple of days uh, tell us, and then would like to get some remembrances from you uh, and thoughts on uh, Her Majesty before we conclude the program. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, Liz Truss hasn't even had a first couple of days. She had about 24 hours um, and then was overtaken by events. Um, and the government at the moment is dealing with the succession and the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, end of. But what was interesting about um, the first couple of days of this Trust's government, first of all, Ben Wallace has remained as Defence Secretary, which, as I said last week, that was beyond my wildest dreams. Um, and I was very worried last week that you suggesting this was a possibility was basically jinxing it. But she has done, boy, the right thing. Uh, she's appointed the, or reappointed the, the best person for the job by a long way uh, at a time when um, 
the UK needs uh, strong defence, but also the Ministry of Defence needs a really strong minister who knows what's going on. And I think that his reappointment is fantastic news for defence in the UK in the broadest and also some of the narrowest senses. Um, as a, as a uh, you know a small add-on, I think it is very positive that James Cleverly, the uh, Foreign Secretary, is a serving reservist. I have actually served for a very brief period alongside him and, and like him. Um, uh, as a, just as a tiny point, uh, he um, is a gunner, a Royal Artilleryman. So if you ever get the opportunity to interview him, I suggest you speak a little bit loudly. Um, <laughs> I don't think we should treat anything that Liz Truss said during the leadership election with anything other than a pinch of salt. Politicians do and say all sorts of things, whether sensible or not, to get elected. We all know that. There is only one thing that I think is important because it has been repeated uh, since she became prime minister, and that is this commitment to the UK spending 3% of GDP on defence by 2030. And the, the point I would make is that this change utterly changes the political dynamic for the UK and for Europe. Um, this had been a statement that was started by Boris Johnson, but of course he was a lamed up prime minister at that time. You now have a prime minister who has taken office this week, who has every opportunity to say something different to her predecessor, who has picked up that commitment and run with it. Now, the UK may not get to 3% in 2025, 26, 27, 28, 29, but this tells you that defence spending is going up as a percentage of GDP not going down. And that is a change from anything, frankly, in my lifetime. In my lifetime, UK defence spending has come down from 6% of GDP to, to under 2 and then came up to just over 2 again. Um, I think the fact that 2% of GDP is now, in a European context, the floor and not the ceiling is phenomenally positive, even if, you know, Russia collapses, Putin collapses. It's just a recognition that when stuff happens, you need defence. And we've all had the most fantastic budgetary holiday that can't continue. So I think that's the most important thing about, you know, the Liz Trust government uh, so far. Um, nothing will happen this week, frankly, because, you know, there's, there's more important things in the UK to, to go on with. But I think that, you know, that's the thing we're going to be watching over the next couple of weeks. Um, um, but but is it but is it if 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 I may just before uh, I, I we segue uh, to uh, talk about Her Majesty briefly, it, there is intent is one thing, fiscal gravity is another. No, um, no, you're, I totally disagree with that. This is political intent that is becoming political consensus. It means that there starts to be a ratchet effect in defense spending. Only starts to be, but it's a bit of a ratchet effect. It's very difficult. Uh, I mean, yes, you know, the UK economy is under immense pressure, like every other European, European economy, and probably worse. But it means that the political calculus now is to, is at every stage, and every party is to spend more rather than spend back. And defense now becomes the bill rather than the bill payer. That's a huge change politically. We have not seen that in mine or, mine or your lifetime. Um, and uh, I think that's very, very positive. You know, there's been no pushback on that by any of the opposition parties here in the UK. They all recognize that. Um, 
it will not be linear. Do not take a ruler and go from 2% of GDP to 3% of GDP um, over eight, nine years. It won't be like that at all. It'll almost certainly be a sort of you know, J-curve type thing. But it shows you that there has been a sea change in how defence spending is seen in this, this part of this country of Europe and other countries in Europe will you know, broadly match or, or echo that. Um, let me uh, take it to the last question, which is about Her Majesty. It truly is an inflection point. Uh, she was a, of a different generation. She was a World War II veteran um, and always placed duty and abiding by rules and norms, even to the point where she was criticized for them. But she lived of a code um, that I think virtually nobody else in society even understood, uh, much less complimented. Now there's a sense of sort of understanding uh, that code by which she lived. Um, what is her legacy at a time when everybody is a norm and a rule breaker, right? Boris Johnson, uh, the, uh, the prime minister she saw off, uh, Liz Truss was the 15th prime minister uh, that she had asked to form a government, um, you know, two days before she uh, passed. Uh, and I have to say, you know, if you're going to pass after 96 rich years, passing with your faculties without much suffering and with your family around it is, is pretty much as classy a way as um, uh, to really wrap it up. Um, ultimately, what's, what's the significance here in your mind as, as a proud Briton, um, a former soldier, uh, and, and as patriotic, Sash, a Brit as I know? I don't see this as an inflection point, but I see it as an end of an era. Um, but ends of era mean that there's also the start of another era. Um, she set, as you quite rightly point out, incredibly high standards and expectations of behaviour. Those were not always met by her subjects and her prime ministers. Um, but it doesn't mean to say those standards were not set and have not been recognised. Uh, you know, in terms of how she changed uh, Britain's position internationally, she rebuilt Britain's post-colonial relationships and post-war relationships. When she acceded uh, to the um, throne, the Commonwealth had seven members and it's now got 56. All of them have joined of their own free will rather than because we invaded them. That's actually something I, we feel rather proud of. Uh, they seem to like being in a Commonwealth. Um, one of the things that I think is very, very encouraging, and people tend to ignore, and I apologize for sort of the vulgarism of this, but um, the King, Charles, has, in my understanding, probably the best personal Rolodex in the international business. There's almost nobody he can't pick up the phone to um, and get people, you know, get people together, get people talking, get people doing things. Um, he has been overshadowed by his mother, who's done a, a remarkable job. But Charles's personal ability to, you know, to get people together internationally is remarkable. Um, from the point of view of Britain, corporate stability is really important in our business. And the royal family, as you're probably aware, often refers to itself as the firm, which is a, it's, it's a nice um, you know, piece, of self, uh, piece of deprecation, really. In any company that I've ever followed, and I know Ron will ever have followed, management succession is a key indicator of the health of that company. Um, if you want to see, if you have wanted to see world-class succession planning and execution, we've had it this week. That of King Charles following Queen Elizabeth actually was better than world class. And, the, you know, the king has done a superb job, in my opinion. OK, 
of the public aspects of the succession. A pitch perfect, tone perfect uh, broadcast uh, on the night, uh, multiple appearances and speeches thereafter. What have the surprises been? I think three real surprises, one of which I'm incredibly happy about in particular, but who, who have surprised me? The messages of condolence from President Xi and President Putin. What a surprise those two have been. My feeling, President Putin, or probably more likely, Sergei Lavrov, his foreign minister, just, um, A, Lavrov is classy, but he just sees the need to, to have some small olive branches just in case. President Xi, really impressive. The best of the lot, uh, President Macron. Um, Liz Truss said some fairly unwise things uh, at the heat of the um, election campaign a couple, of, a couple of weeks ago. President Macron's um, speech and message of condolence was, you know, made me well up. So there you are. So, um, you know, I mean, just as a final thing, it's, it's very hard, but many people I've already met socially over the last 36 hours have already sung the, their first God Save the King um, which is, you know, and the national anthem has changed. And, you know, so I think people I've talked to have been very, very proud of that. It's been felt very odd. Um, we're already getting used to, to His Majesty's ships. Um, so it's, right. it's a huge change, but the, the system, the, uh, the firm, the country have managed it fantastically so far. And from the point of view of soft power, the next two to three weeks, when there are going to be and probably hundreds of uh, politicians, dignitaries from other countries coming to the UK and so forth is a fantastic opportunity, probably to reset some of the slightly sillier things that have been said in the last six, nine, 12, 48, 60 months or so. Um, and to, you know, to, to give both the king and the government, uh, um, you know, a, a, a jump start on things. Um, I should also point out that uh, His Majesty also um, paved the way for uh, William uh, and Kate uh, as well, very uh, elegantly. Uh, and I should also point out that uh, Flags in America will stay half staff until uh, Her Majesty's uh, funeral, which I think and is we, an we, extraordinary thing. Can I just thing. say, we are, we are incredibly touched at that. I would like to thank, you know, Americans. I mean, you know, it's not my job or I, it's, it's a way above my pay grade, but it is something that is recognized in the UK, and we are very, very touched by that. Um, I, I think that it says something that in, in a very proud Irish-American president made that order uh, for a flag that now flies half-staff uh, on a building that was burned to the ground uh, by one of Her Majesty's predecessors and one of His Majesty's predecessors. And I think that finer symbol of national friendship, I think, than that. Just echoing deepest sympathies to our many UK friends and colleagues, and of course to you, Sash, and uh, well, we'll be thinking uh, be thinking of the, the King and wishing the best. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, everything Richard said. A great opportunity to say, God save the King, right? Uh, everybody, thanks very, very much uh, again. Uh, and uh, hope you guys have a terrific day, a terrific week, and look forward to having you all back together again uh, next week. Thanks so very much. Perfect. Yeah, as, Thank as, you. as always, Vago, thanks. Thanks so much, Vago. Great to be here, Vago. Thank you.